if you are not physically well, um, i.e. have a cold or pain, what techniques can you use to have a peaceful meditation session? Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons for, for practicing meditation um, is to understand and to become more aware of the nature of pain, how to deal with pain, and in particular the relationship between pain and suffering. Now, um, for most people, pain and suffering are, are one and the same thing. But through um, development of, of mindfulness and awareness, you can separate the two and recognize that it's possible to experience physical pain without suffering. Um, the reason why that is possible is that um, what we call pain um, usually involves um, a mental reaction to pain. And that mental reaction to pain is almost immediate, so that um, very few people realize what, what's happening. And the kind of reactions to pain that you have uh, will be deeply conditioned it may be conditioned, for instance, by experiences of pain as a child. For instance, if, if someone uh, as a child experienced a lot of pain and there was no um, loved one, no parent to soothe them or to take away their pain, then the meaning of physical pain uh, for them is very difficult, different from the meaning of someone who experienced physical pain but always was sure that there was a parent or someone to help them. So we, we have perceptions about pain. It has different meanings for different people. And, and our experience of, of the suffering of pain is created in our brain more than anywhere else. Um, Certain deeply uh, conditioned reactions to pain take a lot of time to work with. But what we can, can do is to see very clearly that the suffering caused by pain is bound up with some kind of resistance. So that resistance to pain, that non-acceptance of pain, may manifest as anger, resentment, uh, feeling sorry for yourself, panicking, feeling afraid, worrying. What's going to happen next? If it's like this now, what's it going to be like in five minutes or ten minutes? Or is this something serious? All kinds of doubts and worries. <clears throat> um, but the most fundamental is, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to have to experience pain. 
So the all those mental reactions are, are things that are not inherent in the pain. They're not part of the pain itself. They're things that we add on to the pain. And with mindfulness, we can find skillful means of, of dealing with that. Now, there's a basic psychological principle underlying the various methods of dealing with pain. And that is that in any one moment, uh, your mind can either be in a, a wholesome state or an unwholesome state. Wholesome and unwholesome are the translations for guson, akuson. So um, we can use a very simple um, replacement um, technique. For instance, if you're having um, pain, through, it might be through some illness or it might just be the pains coming from sitting in an um, uh, unaccustomed position, uh, aches in your knees and your back and so on, then uh, when it's becoming really annoying and irritating, um, then what we can do is develop a consciously positive attitude towards the pain, an attitude of acceptance. Um, and that attitude of acceptance replaces all the negative mental states that have already arisen without our recognizing them. So, say you have a pain, which you, you, for instance, you can use the breathing and just imagine that the breathing is like a very cool, gentle breeze, just like caressing the area of pain very gently and kindly. So you're using imagination um, to create a positive mental state which replaces the mental, the negative mental state. Now this, um, this whole, whole, there's a whole array, um, different, many different kinds of practices um, included in this umbrella to meditation which um, aim to replace negative mental states with positive mental states. And all these are called by the name of samatha. Samatha means using your intelligence to create, sustain, develop positive mental states and to reduce and eliminate negative mental states. That's the meaning of the word samatha. Um, so, um, the developing feelings of loving kindness or imagine the breath as a gentle caress on the area of pain, two examples of, um, of skillful samatha practices, um, sort of a Mahayana or some bodhisattva practice might be consciously taking on the pain of all sentient beings, or if you had a um, someone you love who's currently in a lot of pain, then imagining that you're taking that pain for them instead of them. So it's not, I'm not suggesting that you can actually do that, but it's a skillful means of changing your attitude towards the pain. Now the other kind of meditation that you can do 
uh, which again loosely comes under the, the term vipassana. And that means that you look at the very nature of the problem, in this case the pain or the illness, um, and, and in looking at the reality of it, what actually is going on here, then that very effort is wholesome. It's kusala or kuson. And that also replaces the unwholesome. Um, I'll give you a few of these English technical terms because they're not words you'll come across so often. And one is proliferation. So you may have heard like nuclear proliferation. Um, but we use this as a, as a translation of the idea of brungbang. There's a kit brungbang, brungbang. In English we have to use this rather long word that even many English people don't know as proliferation. So instead of proliferating with thoughts of resentment and fear and anxiety, we replace it with the intention to investigate the nature of the pain. So there are, of course, three particular themes of this kind of meditation. One is to see the impermanence, and secondly is to see the dukkha, or the, the suffering, the, the painful aspect as, as pain. And the third is the anatta, or the selfless or ownerless nature of phenomena. In this, these, of these three themes, most meditators will find one is kind of easier or really appeals to them more than the others. So you don't have to use all three. You can just use one. Um, in the first case, uh, anicjang or impermanence is the easiest to understand, at least intellectually. It's the constant change. So if you have a, like a pain in your, in your knee, let's say, so you say, oh, I, my, my knee hurts. And so the, the, uh, the vipassana or wisdom approach is to say, what is, what is going on here? Where is the pain? What is the characteristic of the pain? What's the intensity of the pain? And so something that seems to be a very kind of solid block of pain, when you look at it very closely, you see that it's very, it's energy. It's basically energy. This, it's moving all the time. It's not in a fixed place. The, the characteristic of pain varies greatly. You can have shooting pains and pressing pains and, um, all kinds of different um, pains, and the intensity of the pain is not stable either. So you can, pain tends to come in waves, doesn't it? It gets, it reaches a peak, and then it, then it um, uh, reduces, becomes reduced a little bit, um, and then it becomes again another another wave. So we're looking rather than seeing a pain as something to be feared or something to get away from then we're looking at it and saying, what's going on here? What, what is this thing experientially, you know, beyond language, what is this experience that we call pain? And we look at it in terms of, as I say, its, uh, its location, its characteristics, its intensity. And so uh, through that effort of facing up and looking at pain in that very precise kind of way, those kinds of fears and anxieties and resentments and, and so on have no place. They, they can't maintain themselves in your mind. 
so in the course of meditation, every meditator you know, has uh, physical pains of one kind and another. And these are not kind of enemies of meditation, but these are part of it because meditation is not to find a technique to take you off into another world where you're sort of living, you're sort of blissed out. It's not like a drug, but you're learning life skills and you're learning ways of looking and understanding your experience as a human being, uh, free of theory and, and philosophy. And you're just looking what what's going on here right now. And you're developing means of dealing with the problems that you experience internally. Um, not just running away from in, uh, unpleasantness or unpleasant mental states or um, painful physical states, but you're trying to learn from them and learn how to deal with them constructively. So if you, you learn these kinds of skills while you're sitting meditating or you're walking in meditation, in, in Jonkrum, uh, walking meditation, those skills then you can apply in your daily life. And your attitude to, to pain uh, will change. Um, fear of death is, is for most people largely a fear of pain, uncontrollable pain rather than of death itself. So your attitude to death changes when you're willing to look at pain. Um, the, the key point, again, is to see that pain uh, does not necessarily mean suffering. There's a lack of mindfulness and awareness that allows pain to morph into suffering um, because we're unaware of the way that the mind reacts to the pain. The more aware we are, um, the less we have to do that, the more freedom we have from that habitual reaction. So um, if you have, uh, generally, you have some kind of illness and sitting cross-legged is not an option, then you can also sit on a chair, be more comfortable. The, it, the, more, the important point is, that you're maintaining that sense of effort um, in whatever, with whatever restrictions that you have. So if you're sitting on a on a seat, that's fine. You need some some support. But you know, if you just sort of lean back and just totally relax, that that won't be meditation. You'll just uh, fall asleep. Um, it is possible to, if you're very ill, to meditate laying down, but that's very difficult to do because, of course, it's so easy to fall asleep. But if you do that, um, my suggestion is that you don't meditate in the same sleeping posture you, posture you adopt for sleeping. So if you always sleep um, on, your, on your side, then you meditate laying on your back. If you tend or you always sleep laying on your back, then lay on your side and adopt a mudra with your fingers or something, something to maintain that sense of this isn't the same thing that I'm doing when I fall asleep. Otherwise, just the habitual um, reactions will take place and, and you'll fall asleep very, very quickly. So um, don't resent um, aches and pains that arise. And that's, that's all part of the learning process. And there's, there's nobody who doesn't have to deal with that in meditation. Um, it's how to make 
use of those every kind of experience, um, both those that we enjoy and we don't, um, to develop wisdom and understanding, which is the main point. Um, <clears throat> there's a second question. If someone says something hurtful to you, how do you stop yourself from getting mad? Um, I, I spoke um, briefly yesterday about the the path of of practice um, as being like a holistic system or one involving an education of your uh, every aspect of your your life, both your conduct, your speech, your emotions, your thinking, your attitudes. And that education has to take place in every area simultaneously. It's not a step-by-step -step process. And the, um, the practice to deal with some particular negative emotion, therefore, has to include dealing with it um, both in terms of our our conduct, our speech, our emotions, our thinking. So on the, um, on the level of conduct, then we use willpower and the intention to refrain from expressing anger as uh, our leading principle. So there is um, a role for willpower um, and making a firm determination not to do things and not to say things. The, the important point here is to recognize that um, that kind of intention, that kind of willpower is only applicable to action and speech. We can't just stop ourselves feeling feeling mad or jealous or whatever because we think it's a bad thing. It doesn't respond to willpower. But um, on the level of action and speech, if when we get mad, we get angry, we express it, then we create bad karma with body and speech, which will have consequences, sometimes very severe. Um, it affects the relationship with the person that we get angry with, of course. But um, also internally what happens, every time that we express anger, it's like we, we deepen the pathway between anger and expression. So it becomes more and more an automatic response or reaction uh, when um, something happens that we don't agree with or we don't want to happen. So this is an aspect of kamma as well, is that we create ourselves, we create our automatic responses to experience through habit. And every time we act in a certain way, we increase the tendency to act in that way in the future. And that's what kamma is. Well, when we're um, 
angry, then we tend to act and speak in violent ways which we regret afterwards and make us unhappy, make others unhappy. So um, the first leg of this or aspect of this education training is to be restrained in our expression of anger. And that's not to say we should repress anger, but simply to um, abandon the expression of it. Now, the, the anger itself is a mental state. It's an emotion. And we can deal with this emotion by promoting all the positive emotions that directly oppose it. The, um, there are many po positive emotions that work to reduce and eliminate anger. Um, the fundamental one which is present in almost every technique is mindfulness. Mindfulness works as an early warning system. Before you uh, really lose it, before you lose your temper, before you get really angry, there are always certain indications, um, certain signs, physical signs, mental signs, that you're starting to get angry. But because we're not very... Um, we're not very aware of what's going on in our body and mind. We're too cooked into what's going on around us that we tend to miss those signals. So we train ourselves to tune in to those signals, to become sensitive to them, and notice particularly what kind of physical changes start to take place when you get a bit angry. To focus your attention on that, you may find you're sort of um, uh, gritting your teeth, or maybe you some tension in your shoulders or your arms or in your tummy. Or um, Everyone has a slightly different kind of pattern of, of sensations and indications that you're starting to get angry. And this is what we call it's a nimitta, it's a nimit, it's a sign that anger is on the way. So if you have that developed that kind of sensitivity, that's just as you're beginning to get angry, when the anger is still very weak, then you can deal with it very easily, you can let go of it very easily. Um, patience, um, being uh, being able to bear with um, things that we don't like without reacting to them blindly is um, another factor which uh, reduces the likelihood of getting angry. Um, so there's a wonderful English uh, translation of Kanti Kwam Oton as peaceful coexistence with the unpleasant. So it's not just you're able to bear with, to be present to something unpleasant, but you can be peaceful with it. And you don't fight it, you recognize it for what it is. So that's the role of patience. Um, one more leading virtuous or positive quality is loving-kindness or metta of consciously developing thoughts of loving-kindness for yourself and for those around you and for um, those people that you meet every day and people who tend to make you angry or make you feel angry. 
And so um, that's a kind of a protection against that angry mindset. So these these methods are um, these uh, the this area of practice um, involves constant consciously developing, um, promoting wholesome tamas, wholesome positive mental states which directly oppose anger. And the third and the most important area is wisdom understanding your thinking. Um, because um, as long as you have certain wrong ideas in your mind, wrong assumptions and beliefs, then anger will never completely disappear um, from your mind. So if you have, for instance, you know, he should be this way. Um, and then when he, he or she is not the way you think they should be, they don't act, they don't speak the way you think they should, and then very often you'll get angry. Um, so if you question yourself, well, why should, why should they be that way? You want them to be that way. But as a, you know, but why should they be that way? I mean, people are the way they are because of the way they think, the way they, uh, their views, their beliefs, their assumptions, their background, and so on. So that they're like that. They're just that way right now. Um, so we create suffering for ourselves when we, we, um, think people should be a certain way or should act in a certain way. It shouldn't be like this, you know, or, um, I've told that person time and time again not to do that and they've done it again you know. um, they shouldn't they shouldn't have done that again so we have hopes and expectations and desires and they're frustrated then uh, we we can get angry so the more we investigate the way the way things are the way that the people are and due to the causes and conditions, then some of the under, undermining, uh, underlying ideas that support anger start to fade away. Um, similarly, um, when we reflect upon all the pain and suffering that we've experienced in our life so far because of our anger, when we reflect on the, pe the pain and suffering that we see around us in our family, um, friends, friends' families and societies um, through the power of anger, then we get to a certain point where we think, I just don't want that as part of my life anymore. And you realize unless you do something about it, um, you're going to have to deal with anger in yourself and its consequences for the rest of your life and in future lives. There's no one, there's nobody, there's no pill, there's no um, um, holy being who's going to take away your anger. It's something that you've created yourself and something you have to take away yourself. You have to take responsibility for it. So though that kind of, of reflection, what we call wise reflection, to gives you this determination um, to be free from anger through seeing the um, suffering inherent in anger. And also if we can uh, remember 
recollect or recall the cases where we've met people uh, who seem to be free from anger or people who behave in such a way that we're amazed and we think, well, if that had been me in that situation, I would have completely lost my temper. You see, if, um, probably the worst thing, um, that the thing that's hardest to deal with in life is contempt, isn't it? If someone do talk, do mean, that, that's probably the most difficult thing emotionally uh, for people to, to deal with. Um, and sometimes if you see someone being treated with utter contempt and yet to be able to maintain their evenness of mind and not be affected by it, that's so inspiring. You see people who think you, you would think surely they would get angry in such a situation and they don't. And you remember that and you think how beautiful that is, how noble. And that gives you something to aspire to. So you're, you're changing your thinking and your attitudes to anger by wise reflection and by looking at the way things are and the way uh, that anger arises and the way that anger disappears. You say, well, is anger really who you are? Um, is it, is it you? Is it truly part of you? So if you were to say yes, then, then the, the following question would be, okay, show me your anger. Get angry right now. Show me what it's like. You can't, can you? You can't just decide to be angry. But if anger was really something that belonged to you, your possession, uh, surely you should be able to get angry on demand. But you can't. So the anger is a conditioned phenomena. It's not you, it's not who you are. But at the same time, it's something you have to take responsibility for. So when someone uh, says something hurtful, then uh, firstly you're you're being careful not to uh, react and make and make the situation worse. Um, if someone's saying something hurtful, there you know there are two possibilities, aren't there? One, they want to hurt you, and secondly, they're just insensitive um, and they just don't realise what they're saying. So if they're insensitive and they don't realize what they're saying, then uh, why get angry with them, you know? Um, but if they um, intend to hurt you through their speech, well, um, if you get hurt by it, then you've lost, haven't you? You've, um, you've made them happy. So, um, and if someone is deliberately trying to be hurtful, if you react in an angry way, that's going to please them more than anything else. They, you know, they, they've got what they wanted. That's why they um, were hurtful to you in the first place. Um, so, um, if you can recognize, oh, this this person's got um, wants to hurt me. Okay. Well, then you say, well, you could ask yourself, why why does that person want to hurt you? There may be. Um, they have some misunderstanding. They've heard from somebody else that you did or said something that you didn't really do. And so they're being hurtful under a um, misapprehension, um, in which case well, there's no, no reason to get angry because you've believed words that people have said before and made mistakes, haven't you? Um, but if someone is just really kind of mean and cruel and nasty, um, and they just like to hurt people, um, and there are people like that around sometimes, then 
reflecting on the law of kamma, they say that 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 person um, must have a really horrible world to live in, mental world to live in. If that person is um, following those impulses of cruelty and and harshness and so on, and enjoys inflicting pain on others, then they're creating so much bad karma for themselves, and in future they're going to have to suffer so much. And if you can reflect upon that wisely, you can feel compassion for that person. When you really understand the law of karma, and you have that kind of confidence in it, then when you see people acting in those unskillful ways, you you feel sorry for them um, because you know that they um, one day um, it might not be this week, this month, this year, or even this night, but they can't escape from the kama they're creating. So this is a way to also of, of looking and thinking about this um, in a way that that um, is um, reducing the amount of anger. Of course, these are things that you have to be doing on a regular basis. Um, but let's just say out of the blue, somebody comes and, and just starts abusing you and saying these really horrible things. Um, my advice is bring your attention to your body. When you hear something, what's happening right now in your body? Don't allow your mind to proliferate, to boom, bang, and how dare they say that, that's so unfair, or who are they to tell them all these kind of things. But bring your attention, what's happening in your body when somebody says something? Where do you feel it? Not what you think about what they're saying, but how do you feel it right now, in what part of your body? And if you can bring that awareness and mindfulness to your physical reaction and just be accepting and aware of that, then it becomes a form of energy in your body um, and you can let go of it uh, much more easily. So that's um, sort of a long answer to a couple of long answers to a couple of questions, but they're quite important questions. So I think it's okay. Um, I have another English question here. According to the Buddha, one should, one, not do evil, two, do all good, three, purify the mind. Um, I, I was wondering if you could explain ways in which one could purify the mind. So the, the idea of purification of mind is, is an essential part of Buddhist tradition. Now, if we compare it with, um, say, some religious traditions that believe in original sin, so original sin means that you know your your mind um, is naturally, inevitably impure. There's nothing that you can do about it. Um, you know you can't take away that impurity. I mean through faith and so on, then you can ultimately transcend that. But you can't. Um, you know, no matter how much you you were to shine um, a piece of coal that piece of coal could never turn into a diamond. No matter how hard you try to polish coal, you can't polish coal and make it into diamond. So the 
underlying basic idea Buddhism is, is the mind is something which can be purified. Which means that there are impurities in the mind, but they're not part of the mind. They're not they're sort of the essence of the mind. They are things which have entered the mind through various causes and conditions. And if we remove those causes and conditions, then they will disappear. So um, we stop feeding those impurities. And um, following on from what I said a few minutes ago, we find methods of um, promoting all those positive qualities, um, pure qualities, which oppose the impure qualities. So when we're no longer encouraging, we're no longer feeding, we're no longer indulging in the impure qualities. And secondly, we are consciously, systematically promoting all the pure qualities. And so the impure qualities become less and less, and the pure qualities um, become stronger and stronger. So this is the way that purification uh, of mind takes place. So um, let's take on the level of dana, so if uh, or attitude to people around us, um, you know, someone's very self-centered. Um, then, um, you know, what's in it for me? You know, is this a Everything's about me and mine. Yeah, so, <clears throat> um, now some heard about this um, couple uh, who see the doctor, and the uh, the husband was diagnosed as having cancer, and the wife said, "Why me?" You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, why why would I have to have her marry a man who got cancer? You know. So, I mean, sometimes to that extent, everything's about me, you know. Um, and that's a pretty miserable world to live in if everything's about me. So with, uh, with dana, you, you'd learn how to move out of that very, um, constricted, miserable little world and open up to the hopes and fears. Um, the pains, the happiness of others. And you seek to contribute to the happiness of others and learn to find joy in it. So that, um, imp- what we, that self-absorption, that self-interest will be considered to be um, an impure mental state. And that um, love and compassion and concern for the welfare of others is a pure mental state. So we um, try not to feed the selfish mental states and to promote and to nourish the pure mental state of love and compassion and concern for others. And that's a one um, area of, of purification. And that goes through with all the different emotions. Another um, piece of logic or hippon 
um, about negative emotions is that if they were like a fixed thing and a fixed part of us, then they would always appear in exactly the same way, given the same conditions, you know. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, if you have two... Uh, two chemicals and you mix them together given the same conditions, the same amount of the same chemicals, you get the same reaction every time. But mentally that doesn't apply, does it? Um, sometimes somebody would say something hurtful to you, to use the example from just now, and you might be very hurt. On another occasion, you might be uh, not so hurt. Sometimes you might be able to take it quite well. Uh, because of various other causes or conditions. One day you might be really down. A lot of bad things had happened that day. You had a row with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or something. All these kind of things had gone wrong. And then when you're feeling very vulnerable um, and unsure of yourself, somebody says something really nasty and it has a huge effect on you. Whereas on another day, and you get very upset with them, then on another day, everything may have gone very well. You may have been very successful in your your work or in your studies. People have uh, given you a lot of praise. Everything's going very well. And uh, you're just feeling very self-confident. Um, and somebody says something hurtful. And it's not nice, but it doesn't really penetrate, doesn't really um, have the same devastating effect because of the very positive state of mind you're in. So even if the, the words, the situation was the same, the words were the same, the intention, the nastiness of the person involved were the same, but the emotional reaction to it, the, uh, the negative mental states that arise in your mind are not always the same because there are so many other things coming into, into play. So um, th this is a, a, a proof that... There are not these kind of fixed um, impurities in your mind or things that you just have to put up with. That There's this very complex web and, and pattern of, of mental states that we can do something about. Okay, I'll, I'll leave these two Thai questions for the Thai session this afternoon. Got time for one more question if anyone... Would like to ask anything? Yeah. Can you speak in English? Between want and need. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting that we don't, you know, we don't even um, have that clear distinction in in Thai language or Bali language. Um, so it is a, a matter of, you know, how you cut the cake and how you talk about um, desires. The, um, I, I think that generally in English, we say need is something that if you didn't have it, you die or you come close to death. So, you know, you need oxygen, you need food, you need rest, and uh, you need a roof over your head, and these, these things are basic needs um but you know even in the west you know there's a big debate about you know what are needs what are the basic needs of human is education a need for instance many people would include that 
um, as a need of, apart and above from the basic physical needs, but also like emotional needs. Um, if, for instance, if, you know, if children lack a, um, a caring parent in the first few months of their life, they'll be emotionally crippled throughout their lives. So you could argue that that was a need. So it's, it's a kind of not a clear uh, concept. Um, but in, in Thai or in the Pali and Buddhism, you see what well, we, we talk about two different kinds of desire. Uh, one desire we call tanha or craving, and then the other is chanta, which we don't really have a, um, a good English version of or translation, but we can say it's like a, a wise or intelligent desire. So, um, often in, in the West, um, people will, uh, will tell you that Buddhism tells you you shouldn't have any desires. Now you shouldn't have any wants. Um, but in fact, the Buddha is saying that you try to eliminate the craving kind of desires, the selfish, ignorant, uh, destructive desires, but you have to cultivate the positive desires, the intelligent desires. For instance, if you want, you see somebody suffering in pain, you want to help them. That's not accumulate. That's not a defilement or an impure mental state. That's a positive desire and that's to be um, promoted and, and, and cultivated. So, so it's a recognition of these desires which are based upon ignorance, um, and, and defilement and lead to suffering and those which come from wisdom and understanding and lead to, um, peace and, and wisdom. So how that relates to wants, uh, and needs, not quite sure. Um, I think that, you know, it's possible to want something that you need. Uh, and need something that you want, but you could also want something that you don't need and need something that you don't want. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, that's, uh, maybe one way of looking at it. Look at all the things that you want, um, and ask yourself, do you need them or not? And what does that mean? Um, and ask yourself, what does, what do you really need? Um, and are you leading your life in such a way that you're, um, that you're finding your way towards all those things that you need. Um, because sometimes or in, often people spend so much time chasing the things they want that they actually overlook the things they need and put themselves in a position where they're not able to um, attain the things that they need because they've been too deluded by the things that they want. So um, we're Again, re- returning to something I said yesterday, Buddhism is like a form of education. The, you know, the things that you want right now uh, are conditioned by all kinds of factors. You maybe want something because it's uh, advertised on the television a lot, or because all your friends have it, or it's considered, you know, fashionable or cool. Um, but it's not something that you that you really need. Um, so um, that's it's a matter of sort of bringing that light of awareness and, and examining those things that you want. And you say, why do you want them? What for? Uh, what, what really is it? You know, why do people want a lot of money? 
why why do people want to be famous? You know, what what is the value? You know, let's sort of the pros and cons of being famous. Why why do, why is that so attractive to people? You know, why is fame such a wonderful? Why why are we so obsessed with celebrity? You know, what's that all about? So, you know, these are things that are very much part of our culture now. Um, but as Buddhists, we need to step back and, and, and look at these things very closely. What, what's going on here? You know, do we want these things for ourselves? Why? What, what is it that lies behind them? What, what do they signify for us? You know, if you, um, if you have a very uh, low opinion of yourself, you know, and you think that, um, there's nothing, uh, uh, there's nothing about you that's interesting. I mean, you think, well, if you have a lot of money or you're famous, then people would be interested in you and somehow your, your life would have more meaning and substance. But is that, is that the case? So, wants and needs, yeah. It, like, it's when, um, like translating Thai into English, you know, if you like the word Tongkan, you know, how do you translate Donkan? Is, is it like want or need? And often it depends on the context, you know, the, the particular meaning. Because sometimes we use Donkan to mean need, and sometimes we, we use it for want. So, so it's a little bit unclear. Okay, um, we have a meditation session before lunch. So, please.